Our reading today uh, comes from uh, uh, the Apostle Peter's second letter to the Christians who were in uh, northern, uh, well, it was now Turkey, I suppose, and uh, they were under persecution, but the persecution had now given way to deception. So his letter, uh, Second Peter, is about false teachers. I'm reading from chapter 2, and verses 1 through to 21. But there are also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their shameful ways and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with stories they have made up. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them, and their destruction has not been sleeping. For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment, If he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued Lot, a righteous man, who was distressed by the filthy lives of lawless men, For that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue godly men from trials and to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment while continuing their punishment. This is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desire of the sinful nature and despise authority. Bold and arrogant, these men are not afraid to slander celestial beings. Yet even angels, although they are stronger and more powerful, do not bring slanderous accusations against such beings in the presence of the Lord. But these men blaspheme in matters they do not understand. They are like brute beasts, creatures of instinct, born only to be caught and destroyed. And like beasts, they too will perish. They will be paid back with harm for the harm they have done. Their idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their pleasures while they feast with you. With their eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. They are experts in greed and a cursed breed. They have left the straight way and wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, son of Beor, who loved the wages of wickedness. But he was rebuked for his wrongdoing by a donkey, a beast without speech, who spoke with a man's voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These men are springs without water and mists driven by a storm. Blackest darkness is reserved for them. For they mouth empty, boastful words, and by appealing to the lustful desires of the sinful human nature, they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, 
for they themselves are slaves of depravity. For a man is a slave to whatever has mastered him. If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, and are again entangled in it and overcome, they are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then turned their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. Of them, the proverbs are true. A dog returns to its vomit, and a sow that is washed goes back to her wallowing in the mud. This is the word of the Lord. And then finally, just before we turn to God's word, if you're a visitor and, read, and you heard that reading, you thought, what sort of a church is this? This is a golly, this is going to be bad news sermon. It sounds terrible. Well, it is terrible in one sense, this chapter, but it's also very encouraging. There's a lot in this chapter that's about judgment. And I'm going to hand that over to God. He worries about those sort of things. I want us to be prepared ourselves to make sure that we are not deceived by false teachers. That's what we're going to do. So let's turn to God's word. But before we do that, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we pray that your spirit would be our guide, that we might uh, know your will in our lives and that you would teach us this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder what gets you really angry and really fired up. Um, Does someone stealing your car park when you're about to go into it, does that rile you up? Do you save the best for your spouse? Do you get riled up or your children? Um, I remember I was telling the story during the week to somebody. I remember getting really riled up with our children one day and they were about three or four or five or something and they're making all this racket on the back veranda of our house. We lived in Fairfield in Sydney and I was really riled up with this noise they were making. Then I realised that there was an earthquake that morning in Newcastle and uh, they weren't making the noise. It was the earthquake that was what was uh, actually upsetting me. The Apostle Peter is riled up in this passage. There's no doubt about it. He is is agitated. He is agitated by the fact that he is leaving and the church has been infiltrated by false, false teachers and false prophets. And he wants to warn the people against them. These these are not just minor false prophets or minor false teachers, minor sort of heretics. There's something very big going on and Peter wants to warn the people about it and warn us. So beware false teachers and beware falsely their message. There are also false teachers, there are also false prophets among the people just as there were false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them bringing swift destruction on themselves. Friends, if you remember nothing else from this message this morning, then just remember this. At the heart of what Peter is talking about, of what false teaching is, is a denial of Jesus. Peter's not talking here in this passage about difference of doctrine which we could have a big discussion about, and there are very big differences that Christians have in doctrine. He's not wanting us to become what I call theological nitpickers, going around and making sure that everybody is as perfect as me. 
No, he's not doing that. He's warning them of something major. And the major thing is when they deny who Jesus is. Deny that he was not fully man. Deny that he was not fully God. Say that he was just a good teacher. Say the bones of Jesus are rotting in Israel. That he was just a political revolutionary. Or in our day, that he was a wealthy man who wanted to bring us all prosperity. The false teachers in Peter's day were denying the person and work of Jesus. And why does Peter get riled up about it? Because he personally knew Jesus. He, as we talked about last week, witnessed the crucifixion and the resurrection. He was there at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was pulled down. And you can imagine Peter would want to say to the false teachers, You're saying that Jesus is not true. I was there. But Peter knows that he's not long left in this world and there's going to be a day where there's not going to be apostles around to say, I saw it. So he's warning all Christians to come of those who would teach that Jesus wasn't the Lord. In our day, most cults, Deny the person and work of Jesus. It's at the heart of what the cults teach. It's no longer the person and work of Jesus. And it matters. It matters because bad theology leads to bad lives. There's lots when it comes to doctrine that we can disagree on. And I as a Presbyterian minister have always encouraged people to major on the majors and minor on the minors. Not get hung up about the smallest point of doctrine. That's not what Peter's talking about here. He's talking about what is central to our faith. You know, the Presbyterian Church, if you look at its history, it's not all noble. And the Presbyterian Church, as much as any and sometimes more than other churches, has been a church that has split over the centuries over all sorts of points of doctrine. There's an old joke about a man visited an old Scottish guy on an island, a bit like this in Scotland, and he lived on the island alone. And this bloke went and visited him, and the fellow who lived on the island alone, he showed him around the island, and he showed him this beautiful church that he'd built. And as the man's walking around and he saw this beautiful church, he noticed another church. So he said to the bloke, what's that church? Oh, he said, that's the church I used to go to. (laughs) Now, we laugh about that because there is a habit of splitting over things that don't matter. And he couldn't make up his own mind. And he couldn't make up his own mind. Peter was worried about a message much more central, the denial of the person and work of Christ, right at the centre of our faith. And what matched with that was a problem with morality. This is especially true of those, verse 10, who follow the corrupt desires of their sinful nature and despise authority. And then in verse... Um, But these men blaspheme in matters they do not understand. They are like brute beasts, creatures of instinct, born only to be caught and destroyed. And like beasts they too will be perished. They'll be paid back with harm for the harm they have done. Their ideas of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. They are blots and blemishes, 
revelling in their pleasures while they feast with you. These false teachers lived lives of gluttony and greed. And again, if you look at the history of cults, cults normally start as conservative Christian groups. And then they go more and more off the rails and at the heart of it is a denial of the person of Jesus. The, the leader, the false teacher, normally becomes completely and utterly morally corrupt while they are incredibly fierce at the obedience of their followers. It's, it's extraordinary that this passage in 2 Peter is really, in many ways, a summary of 20th and 21st century cults and Peter had no idea of what was going on. It hasn't changed. Cult leaders are often those who are strict on everybody else, but not on themselves. With eyes full of adultery, they never stop sitting. They seduce the unstable. They are experts in greed and a cursed brood. They seduce the unstable. Again, that's a weakness of groups that they look to those can they, they can exploit. Now, here's the really scary part. I used to think there were cults and there were us. Does that make sense? There were cults and then there were proper churches. And the two were split by this huge chasm. Well, I don't think they are. I think it's a continuum. And I think we have to be careful where we are on the continuum, not just avoid the extremes. Not only is there a problem with cults and their message and their, and their morality, but also their motives. Peter points out in verse 13, In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with stories they've made up. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them and their destruction has not been sleeping. These teachers will be condemned because of their greed. Should Christian leaders be greedy? Well, of course not. But, and, and it's interesting, isn't it? Jesus got most angry in his day when the leaders of the church were peddling things at church. He said, you've turned my house, into a, my, my house of prayer into a house of thieves. If you do a Google search of wealthy ministers of religion, you don't have any trouble finding many. I found this fellow in uh, South Africa who uh, had been the centre of everyone's attention due to the expensive lifestyle that he leads. He owns one of the most expensive houses in Malawi. To add to it, he owns the most expensive fleet of vehicles. To crown it all, he has at least three private jets. The latest purchased in 2016 cost him $37 million. Yeah. Um, are there those who continue to peddle the gospel for profit? Yes. You know, the ordination vows of a Presbyterian minister, Max, I could ask you, Max, and I'm sure you could quote them off by heart here. One of them says this, when you ordain a Presbyterian minister, they ask this question. Are zeal for the glory of God, love to the Lord Jesus Christ, and a desire to save souls, and not worldly interests or expectations, as far as you know your own heart, your great motives and chief inducements to the work of the holy ministry. 
I remember answering that question. They are, boldly. I'm not sure I'd be so confident in my own heart now. There's a lovely expression in the Navy, Maxwell know this well, when you ask a question of somebody and, and the, the question's got a bit of a dubious answer, if I ask you this question, Max, how do you reply? Good question, well asked. Yeah, that's the Navy. It's the Navy's way of sort of trying to avoid the question, right? You ask a difficult question, they say, good question, well asked. I think if someone said to me now, our zeal for the glory of the Lord, the love of God and a desire to save souls are not worldly interests or expectations, your great motive, I think I'd say now, good question, well asked. I'd like them to be, is what I want to say. I remember being a, a young pastor for just about a year and I don't remember to this day who told me this. But somebody sat me down and said, you know, Richard, there's only two reasons why people do Christian ministry. And it's not just full-time ministry he was talking about, any ministry. There's only two reasons why people are elders in the church, why they play the piano, why they're ministers, why they're... Only two reasons. One is the glory of God and the other is the glory of yourself. Now, that was a shocking thing to tell me and it was a wonderful thing to tell me. Because if you understand that and you know that and you fight against that, you've got some hope. But if you don't and think you're pure and your motives are always good, you're always in strife. The Presbyterian Church has rules about ministers, what they're paid, how they're paid, all those things. They exist because the church doesn't want to go off the rails when it comes to the greed of those involved in leadership. And they're also into manipulation. With eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. They are experts in greed and a cursed brood. Guilt is used, not love. These sort of leaders, these false leaders, prey on those who are weak and make them weaker. They use knowledge as power. Again, I hope you hear me saying, I'm not here about a theological witch hunt. Do you know, I must confess, I have been once in my life had an accusation of heresy brought against me. I was teaching at the Theological College in New South Wales. I was teaching evangelism to the students. And I said to them one day, a bit of hyperbole, I will admit it was hyperbole, but the Lord used hyperbole, so that's, you know, that's my justification. I said to them, there's only one thing worse than being a heretic if you're a preacher, and that's being boring. Because at least if you're a heretic, you might be interesting. Now, the, the young student, one in particular, didn't understand my humour and brought a charge to the principal that Richard was soft on heresy. Um, that wasn't my point, but my point was, you can make it clear, my point here is... I'm not on about a witch hunt this morning. Peter's not on about a witch hunt. He's not talking about small points of doctrine. He's talking about major errors, what we would call cults, who prey on the weak, who manipulate people. And then Peter does something very strange in this passage. He's done all this dramatic teaching and he now lurches to metaphor to try and explain his point. He uses four different metaphors. He says these false teachers are like men 
They are like men, these men are like springs without water. Now that loses a bit in translation for us. But in the ancient world, if you travelled, you would rely on stopping and getting water from natural springs. You would know where they were. And if you did that travel and you were turned up and there wasn't water, that was a major crisis. False teachers and prophets are described as being like an old dry well. I have a friend with an electric vehicle. I don't have an electric vehicle and I don't really have any desire to have an electric vehicle. The more I know my friend and his electric vehicle, the more I don't have a desire. Because he recently travelled up to Brisbane from, um, from Tasmania, from Devonport, and he, he cut the ferry across and he had to plan the whole route on charging stations. And uh, he went the inland road and at most places he stopped there were only two charging stations and he had to hope there wasn't anybody else on them. But he got to one and guess what? It didn't work. It didn't work. <laughs> like a spring without water. That's what Peter's saying, like a false teacher's like. Like, a, like an electric charging station with no current. Useless. His second metaphor is like a mist. These men are springs without water, mists drive, driven by storm. You know what it's like when a storm comes in and you can see the mist come across the water and you can see the water disappear in front of you and then you feel the rain. Max will attest, like me, it's magnificent on a ship, a ship when you can see that mist coming from the distance and then it hits the ship. And, but of course, when you're in the midst of the ship, in the midst of the mist, what do you see? Nothing. And if the teaching is false, it's like not being able to see anything. It's like, and I didn't get a very graphic picture here, fortunately. <laughs> One of them is the proverbs are true, a dog returns to its vomit. Peter is quoting a proverb, 26.11. Now, those of you that have lovely pets know, lovely, lovely dogs, that dogs actually, it's not actually vomit. It's regurgitation. Or maybe that's just a splitting hairs. But what a dog does is if it chews something that's too big for it, uh, sorry, if it doesn't chew it big enough, sorry, small enough, the, the dog will regurgitate it, leave it for a while, and then come back to it. We don't find that at all pleasant, do we? Uh, none of us who've had dogs think that's nice. But it's not so bad for dogs. But it's terrible for false teachers. <laughs> that's what Peter's saying. It's like the worst thing we can think of, the worst metaphor. And the final one, it's like a sow rolling in the mud. Again, please be a little bit sympathetic to the poor sow. Why do sows roll in the mud? To cool off. To cool off, right? They need to reduce their temperature. But Peter's saying that a false teacher will just go back to it. They'll just go back to it. In, in my 30-odd, 40-odd years of ministry, sadly, I have seen a number of Christian leaders and Christian associates fall from grace. And what has amazed me is how many of them have wanted to be restored quickly to ministry. And there's a warning there, I think. Peter's saying, be careful because the sour returns to the mud. There was a, there was a pastor in the States uh, in the 80s, 70s, 80s, his name was Jimmy Baker. No. Jimmy and Tammy Baker ran a ministry called PTL, Praise the Lord. 
this incredible multi-million dollar business with a television ministry that ended with Jimmy Baker going to court and charged with fraud and going to jail for fraud. Lost his marriage, lost his ministry, lost everything. In prison, Jimmy Baker didn't have anything to do. So what did he do? He read the only book that was available, which was the Bible. And after being in prison, he wrote a, a very good book, which I've read, called I Was Wrong, where he realised that he hadn't been preaching the Bible. He'd been preaching the bits of the Bible that fitted his message. And in prison, he read the whole Bible and thought, my goodness, what have I been saying? My goodness, what have I been doing? You think about it. The Old Testament warns about false prophets. Jesus warned about false prophets. Paul warned about false prophets. Peter warns here about false prophets. We need to be warned and we need to beware. Let me just end with four pieces of very practical advice. The passage before chapter 2, the end of chapter 1, was Peter explaining how the, how, how the scriptures came about. So we need to test everyone by the scriptures. When you listen to a sermon, you just shouldn't walk away going, well, the preacher said that, it must be fine. Was it the scriptures? We need to test against the scriptures. We shouldn't accept office and reputation alone. Just because somebody's called a reverend, they have the office of the Presbyterian minister, means nothing. <laughs> alone. Of course we respect those, those offices, but the office is not the ultimate standard. The supreme standard of the Presbyterian Church is none other but the word of God. And so we must judge everything against the word of God, not accept office and reputation alone. If in doubt, seek wise counsel. If you're involved in any church, any Christian ministry at any time in your life and you're worried about it, then seek the advice of those you love. Seek the advice of those wise ones. And beware. But as I said, don't be a nitpicker. <laughs> Let's pray. <laughs> Father, we thank you for your word. Not the easiest part of the scriptures we've read today. Not the most pleasant in many ways. And certainly, we can be fearful of the genuine judgment that is coming on those who teach falsely. Lord, keep us from error. Give us the faith, each one of us, to be people who read your word, study your word, so that when we're exposed to those who might deny Jesus, we will immediately know this is not the gospel we have committed ourselves to. Father, the Apostle Peter in his late of his life was no doubt concerned for the people going forward. We pray, Lord, that we too might be people faithful to the word, not nitpickers, but faithful to your word, seeking to honour you in spirit and in truth. Amen.